Friends, have you ever noticed that we are a culture obsessed with time? Specifically, our time. We think that time is money. Have you ever heard people say that? So we try to do everything in life fast and efficient. If something takes too much time, we quickly change our mind and wonder if it's worth doing it. If something or someone wastes our time, we quickly get irritated and frustrated. We are led to believe that we are in charge of our time, of our schedule. One of the common, most common apps that some of us use on our iPhones is our calendar. You are afraid to commit to anything unless you first check your calendar. Once we think that we are in charge of our time, we like to schedule our tasks, we like to prioritize what is important, we think we are in charge of our time, and so we're led to believe. But the book of Ecclesiastes tells us the opposite. Someone else is in charge of time, even of our own time, and it's not our spouse, nor our boss, nor our friends. It's not even you. This morning, I encourage you to open Scripture to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. We'll be working from verse 1 through 15. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, you may find a Bible in the chair in front of you. I encourage you to open it to page number 554 as we uh, open Scripture, prepare to read God's Word. I want to remind you all that we are currently going through a sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, this is our third sermon. We're taking one passage at a time and look forward to see how the Lord is using this in the life of our congregation to teach us His truths. This morning, the theme of the passage we will be reading is living life in the awe of God. Living life in the awe of God. Here is a passage. Here's a text for our own hearing this morning. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, 
and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sue, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has a worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him that which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need your Spirit to illumine our minds about your revelation. We ask that even in these moments, your presence by your Spirit would be so evident and so clear that, Lord, we would hear a word from you for our hearts. Oh, Lord, open our eyes, open our minds. Use your Spirit to apply these truths to our hearts. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory and honor. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes is one of the most um, well-known uh, texts of this book. It has a number of verses and phrases that you are familiar with. People like to quote them in all kinds of contexts, like the poem about there is a time for everything, or like the verses about um, he has made everything beautiful in its time, or the verse he has put eternity into man's heart. Friends, each and every one of these phrases or verses could have its own sermon by itself. But this morning, I would like us to see how they all actually function together because they're given together in, a, in one unit, in one context, in one, in one paragraph. And I'd like for us to see what is it that they're doing together and what do they try to tell us and more so, what do they try to convince us to do? Well, the, the answer to this, this question of what are these, these verses trying to convince us to do, the answer to that is in the one and only purpose clause of this entire passage. There's a number of verses in this, in this text, but there's only one purpose clause. And this sort of like, sort of zooms in everything. Why is this there? Why are we told what God is doing, how God orchestrates time, and how God is involved with the business of mankind? Why? For what purpose? 
Here's the purpose. Verse 14. God has done it. Why? So that people fear before him. This is why all these words are written together in this paragraph. To show us that the purpose for why God does everything with us is so that people fear him. Friends, I wonder this morning if this purpose has taken root in your own heart. Do you realize that God intends for us to, hear, to fear him? As a matter of fact, this purpose clause, this statement, is actually the climax toward which the entire book of Ecclesiastes is moving towards. Look, just turn to the end of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 13. The end, the end of the matter, all has been heard, says Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, friends, the idea of fearing God in the Hebrew language in the, is, is actually quite common, and we see it often in the books of the Bible that are part of what's called the wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs or even the book of Job. Um, it's not, the idea of fearing God is not primarily about being afraid of God in the sense of running away from God. That's not the idea of fearing God, but rather it's about being in awe of God, revering Him. It's not a fear that drives us away from God, but rather a reverent awe that draws us to Him. It is that fear caused by understanding His greatness, especially in contrast with our smallness. It's that fear of God which this text is seeking to elicit in us this morning. This is the reason why God does what he does. In order that people would fear him, in order that the people would, st the people would stand in awe of him. That's why the theme of this morning's sermon is living in awe of God. Living life in the awe of God. Friends, do you live with this awe of God? Do you live life with this kind of awe? Do you cultivate this awe of God in your life? Or are there other things in your life that have already captivated your awe? Or is your life at that stage where just nothing captivates you anymore? Nothing. You're just tired of life. You're wondering if it's even worth living. What exactly are you supposed to do? Nothing even awes you in this life. Let's see how this text drives us home and, and brings us back and, and tries to cultivate the roots of living life with awe before God. Living life, a life of awe of God. Now, in order to understand this text, um, let's, let's remember what has gone before it. Let's try to understand the context of this, of this book so far. Uh, this, part, this text that we just read is part of a, of a conversation that really started in chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 2, two weeks ago, we saw how from verse 1 to 23, the preacher looked at life from the perspective of the material word, 
world, the, the life that can be seen under the sun. He looked at this life as if God was out of the picture. Now, of course, God cannot be out of the picture, but he looked at life as if God was out of the picture, seeking meaning and significance in, in pleasure, in knowledge, in possessions, in work. And his conclusion at the end of that experiment was that it is all meaningless and transient and therefore a vanity. But then in chapter 2, a turn took place, specifically in verse 23. First, it was a, a turn of attitude. In verse 23, the preacher started talking about finding enjoyment in life. How could he do that when he had just spoken about a world that is full of vanity after all his experiments? Well, he could, he could do this turn because he actually started changing his perspective. He brought God back in the perspective of life. And when he brought God back in the picture of life, the preacher saw that wisdom and enjoyment of life comes from God himself. That God gives these to people whom live to please God. That's what verse 26 in chapter 2 said. For to the one who pleases him, God has given great wisdom and knowledge and joy. So that rather than trying to pursue life and pursue happiness and wisdom and pleasure in this life, our ultimate aim, our ultimate pursuit should be the pursuit of God, to please Him. And as a result of that, God gives us the ability to enjoy life, he gives us wisdom and joy. That was chapter 2. Now, chapter 3 is in the same good mood, if you will. <laughs> or chapter 3 is in the same stage of looking at life from the perspective of God. Preacher continues his focus on this perspective of looking at life from God's perspective. And here he tells us something else. Not only to live life to please God, that was chapter 2. Here in chapter 3, he says, live life with the awe of God. Live life in such a way that you find God pleasing and satisfying, that you are just awed by who God is. Now, why should we live with the awe of God? And how can we cultivate in our hearts an awe for God? Well, he gives us four reasons in this text, four reasons why we can live with the awe of God. The first reason is this. If you like taking notes, this is the first reason. God is sovereign over the seasons of life. God is sovereign over the seasons of life. Look at verse 9 and 10. What gain has a worker from all his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now here the preacher explicitly comes back and states and reflects on what he said in the first eight verses of the chapter. In the first eight verses of the chapter, we see a picture of the cycles of life. It's a poem. Did you notice that it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a text that has a rhyme and, and it's perfect in its alignment and it's a contrast of pairs? If you were to, to, to number the pairs, we have 14 pairs contrasting opposites or extremes or limits. And this poem is introduced by verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. That's a big idea. And then for 14 lines, we're going to hear 
these illustrations about the season for everything. The first two pairs of this contrast deal with the limits of life. Look at verse 2. We see birth and death. And right next to it, we see planting and plucking up. Two pictures of the limits of life on earth. And we're told that they don't happen by accident. Nor do they happen according to our own control. We cannot determine to be born let alone when we are born. We cannot determine when we die. Just like we, we might think, we might think that we can determine when to plant and when to pluck up. We might think that we have control over that. But try to plant anything in the winter. Try and see if that's going to work. It doesn't. Even over the things which you think you have something to do with, like planting and, pl and harvesting, there is a season for that. And you don't get to choose which that season is. You either align yourself with it or you don't. But the point here is that we're told that the season of life, the limits of life, is not under our control. The next two pairs of contrasts um, and verse 3, deal with man's destructive and creative activities, killing and healing, breaking down and building up. These two pairs of contrasts are also under someone else's control. There is a season for them too. When we see these destructive activities done against us or against dear ones, remember that such seasons have been appointed. In verse 4, we see two pairs of contrasts related to human emotions, the contrast between weeping and laughing, between mourning and dancing. And the entire, human, the entire spectrum of human emotions have their seasons, and they too have been appointed. In verse 5, we have two pairs Dealing with relationships. Gathering and casting away stones is a very strange activity for modern years today. In ancient times, um, they most likely they came from the background of military strategy where nations would throw rocks in the agricultural fields of the enemy so that they could not, no longer uh, do any harvesting, any, any agriculture, so their economy would be, would be shut off. Um, so here we deal with, with relationships, whether at national levels or in private, personal levels. So that the seasons of creating closeness and distance between nations or between friends, even these are under the sovereign control of someone who has set up a season for that. Verse 6, we have two pairs that deal with possessions, seeking and losing keeping and giving away, even over our possessions. There is a season for the contrast. And there's someone has determined that season. 
In verse 7 and 8, we have the area of human relationships. Again, personally and nationally, there are times for speaking and there are times for silence. There's times for loving and there's times for hating. There's times for war and there's times for peace. Now, as we look at this list of, of contrasts, here's one thing we should be cautious of. Here's one thing that this list is not saying for us. It is not giving us permission to do every one of these things. As if it is okay for us to engage, especially in the, in the negative things like killing or hating or going to war. This list is not given to give us permission to be doing these things. Rather, this list simply describes the seasons of life as it is realistically lived. These ex experiences happen. We don't have control over them. Sadly, life includes wars, hatred, killing, death, mourning, weeping. When such experiences come to us, do we let them lead us to despair? As if somehow there's no more meaning in life? Remember what this list is doing. It is telling us that the seasons of even these negative experiences have been appointed. There is a season even for them. Think of people who, who have lost dear family members, perhaps a spouse, perhaps children or parents. Some of us this morning might be still grieving over such losses. We might feel the pain of that loss. We can be tempted to think that there's, there's, there's no more meaning in life, in light of the death of, of dear ones. Some of us have not experienced that loss, but if we, if we live long enough, we will. And friends, we should be prepared for those seasons. The worst thing for us is to start facing those seasons unprepared. Even though Scripture tells us there is a season even for those kind of activities. Have you, heard, have you ever heard people say, well, if, if I lost my spouse or children, I don't know what I would do. I would go crazy. I, I would see there's no more meaning in this life. Well, this poem reminds us that even the parts of life that we don't like, those parts of life that we would never choose to put on our calendar, or those things that we fear would happen, even those have been appointed when they do happen. Things like death, things like mourning and weeping, even war is still under the sovereign control of a God who has set the seasons for it. Friends, it's easy when we think of this passage, it's easy for us to think of God's control only in the positive halves of this list. But this list challenges us also to see the negative halves as still part of God's control. There's a season for the negative halves of life just as there's a season for the positive Someone made them both. Some of us this morning might really struggle with the pain of, of aging. You can nod your head. Some of us are afraid of aging. 
Some of us would realize that our bodies are no longer doing the kind of things we were able to do once. And the, 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 the reality of arthritis, the reality of other of, of surgeries, of, of things that just break us down, and we're no longer able to enjoy this life. You may be tempted to, to give in to despair and, and hopelessness, and wonder why live if this is what life is about. Remember, such seasons are not an accident. The one who has given you the season of youth is now giving you the season of aging. It's part of God's design. God is not loving you any less just because you are going through a season of increasing discomfort. God is not any less present with you just because you are going through a season of tears and mourning. For those of us who, who are not in that season of life right now, prepare yourself for it. It's coming. Don't live like you're going to be young forever. There is a season for aging. There is a season for tears. There is a season for mourning. And friends, the one bad way to prepare for it is not to think about it. Prepare for it. God gives both. This is a business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Take both from the hands of God. Remember the sovereignty of God over the seasons of life. And let that truth increase awe in you for God. Notice what else God has done to increase our awe of Him. Not only is He sovereign over the seasons of life, the second reason why we can increase in our awe of God is God has put eternity into our hearts. God has put eternity into our hearts. Look at verse 11. He has put eternity into man's heart. After looking at the limits of human life on earth, and at the opposites of human experience, the preacher tells us a great secret about the human heart. God has put eternity in it. Why? Why is that a big deal? Why is that important? Because eternal life has been lost in Genesis 3. That's why. And since Genesis 3, we are living in a world cursed by vanity. And throughout the Old Testament story of God's redemption, as God, the story of God's redemption develops from the book of Genesis onward, God occasionally reminds His people that He's going to do for them something, something eternal. God at one point says that He will give them an eternal covenant. At another place, he says, I will give to you an eternal kingdom. In another place, God says, I will give to you an eternal joy. In another place, God says, I will give to you an eternal life. All in the Old Testament. Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher says, God has put eternity into man's heart. What does that mean? It means that God has put in us, has given us a capacity 
for eternal things, even though we have lost our right to eternity. We have questions inside of us, questions like, what happened prior to the creation of the world? Or what happens to us after we die? Is there anything after death? Questions like that. Where do they come from? Why are we thinking about that? Why do we wonder whether or not there is something after death? Because God has put a curiosity inside of us. God has put a void in us for eternal things. There is a sense in us that life is not bound only to what this earth shows us. Who put that sense? Who put that curiosity in us? God did. Yet notice what verse 11 uh, continues to say at the end. It says, even though God put eternity into man's heart, yet man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, even though we have a curiosity and a sense of, of knowing that which is eternal, God has chosen not to reveal to us everything. Our ability to understand life fully and God's design uh, exhaustively is limited. We are only given a small window, a small glimpse of what this life is about. God's plans are way too great for us to understand in their fullness. There's a great mystery that we don't understand about so many things about how God and why God does things, especially when it comes to understanding God's timing, especially in that. There's so many things we don't understand why God would take a young man and made, make him be hated by his brothers. So hated that they wanted to harm him. And they did by throwing him in a, in a, in a, in a well and then so, selling him and, 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 and then lying to their father that he was killed by, by beasts. Why would people do that? What is God's purpose in that? as the story of Joseph unfolds. We don't understand the mysteries of God, God's plans, especially of His timing. Friends, be sure of this. God reveals to us enough for us to understand His purpose for what He wants us to do here and now. God has revealed to us enough, even though we don't understand His plans exhaustively, and comprehensively, He revealed enough for us so we understand what He wants us to do in relationship to Him. He wants us to pursue Him. He wants us to, to adore Him and to be in awe of Him and to live life with that awe and fear of Him. Let this reason increase your awe of God, that even though we are limited in our ability to understand everything from the beginning to the end, God has still put eternity in our hearts. Right? Imagine if we didn't have the sense of eternity in our hearts. Imagine if we would never be interested at all. If, imagine if there's been, there would be no inkling in our own minds, some questions in our own minds that would, that would pursue us. Imagine what would, be, what would we be like? Like beasts, like animals. Now, there are some people who are actually trying to live like that. They're trying to stifle 
those, that sense of eternity and try to, to put it down. And they, they think, well, science, science doesn't prove to us eternity. It is more reasonable to deny eternity than to believe it, they would say. But the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God put eternity not in a science report, but in man's heart. I love what Michael Eaton says, our consciousness of God is part of our nature. And the suppression of it is part of our sin. Be at awe that God, even though we have failed and rebelled against Him, God still put a sense of eternity in our hearts. Let your awe of God be increased because God put this sense of eternity in our hearts. There's a hunger in us for eternal things, even though we have forfeited our right to that eternity. A third reason why we can be in awe of God is that God gives us the ability to enjoy life. God gives us the ability to enjoy life. This is stated in verse 12 and 13. The preacher says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Twice in these verses, we're given this notion of joy and pleasure. Even if man can't understand all of life, even if we can't understand God's timing, even if we can't understand his mysteries, let we understand this. God has created life to be lived with joy. God has created life to be lived with joy, to be able to take pleasure in our work and life. Now, what makes this point impressive is that this truth is given to us in the book of Ecclesiastes, a book about vanity, a book about, about the meaninglessness of life. In the context of this entire book, even in this kind of context, we're given this great news that God gifts His people with the ability to enjoy the things of life. Notice that vanity is not taken away. Notice that the transientness of life is not fixed. It's the same life, but now in it, a sense of joy and meaning permeates it. Again, Michael Eaton said, man is offered a life that is joyful, but not self-sufficient. Man is offered a life that is joyful, but not self-sufficient. The problem comes when we start looking at life as self-sufficient. And when we start looking at life as the source of our joy, as that's all we need, this life. No, friends, joy and meaning in life come not from life itself, but from God. It is God who gives us the ability to have joy in the midst of a life of vanity. Yet how often do we look at life itself as a source of, of joy? How often do you look at the events of life and the things in your schedule and look to them to bring you joy as opposed to looking to God to make you joyful in all the events in your calendar? If you looked at this life itself for joy and pleasure, what you will find is vanity and meaning, meaninglessness, transientness. But if you look to God, for joy and pleasure, God will give it to you, even when you would have no reason physically. In other words, none of us can escape the vanity of life, but when we choose to reorient our lives 
toward God, we understand that nothing, nothing in this life is an accident. Even the negative halves of life, even in those, we can turn to God and find in Him peace and comfort. Let this reason increase your awe of God. He is a God able to bring joy, true joy, lasting joy, in a world cursed with vanity. Only God, the true God, can do that. And the last reason why we can look to God with awe, why we should look to Him with awe and live life with the awe of God, is because God's work is beautiful, permanent, and complete. Because God's work is beautiful, permanent, and complete. These are the last thoughts of this passage. Look at verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Not just some things. Everything. But that beauty is determined in God's timing, not ours. So that the sovereignty of God makes things beautiful. Oh, friends, the sovereignty of God makes everything beautiful in his timing. Then in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. Friends, this is great medicine for our souls when our hearts are overcome by meaninglessness, by a sense of what's going on. I don't know why life is worth living. Ecclesiastes challenges us to see that all of life under the sun is vanity. It is transient, temporal, passing, and yet in contrast with this life, what God does endures forever. You can't add to it, nor can you take away from it. It's also complete. God doesn't ask us to contribute to His work so that His work would somehow be better as a result of our work. Oh, no, friends. Whatever He does needs no more touch-ups. Nothing. Friends, let these attributes of God's work increase your awe of God. God's work is beautiful in its time, not in our time, but His. God's work is permanent, not subject to the vanity of this life. God's work is complete. We can't add away, add to it or take away from it. And that's reminding that indeed God is sovereign over all the seasons of life. John Calvin, in his Institutes uh, of the Christian Religion, which really is a book about the Christian life, um, it says the following, that there are several reasons why God does what He does when He makes plans for us. And he gives a list of, of reasons. He says, it's either to instruct His people in patience, or to correct their wicked affections and tame their lusts, or to subjugate them to self-denial or to arouse them from sluggishness. There's a good list of reasons. It's not a comprehensive list by any means. The book of Ecclesiastes at this point tells us another reason why God does what He does. To encourage us to stand in the awe of God. To encourage us to stand in the awe of God. Friends, people today do not stand in the awe of God. We are either lured by false promises of life or we're numbed by the boredom of life or frightened by the meaninglessness of life. Few people are able to live with an active awe of God. And yet this, this text challenges us to live with this kind of awe. 
How does the providence of God, how does the sovereignty of God over the seasons of life enable us to live the Christian life with awe? Remember that boy who was sold into slavery by his brothers because of hatred. When time came in his, if you will, quote, fate, when time came in his life when he could pay back, and he's had his brothers kneeling before him, instead of being full with revenge and hatred, he looked to them and said, I was sent before you by God's will. He was able to look at the seasons of hatred that were done against him. And he was able to look and say, there, there was a season for that. Someone had let that happen. It was not just you. There was a God who planned it. Or remember Job, when he got news that the Chaldeans destroyed his family? He could have been filled with anger, with despair, with hopelessness. But instead, he looked at the providence of God. He looked at the sovereignty of God and said one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a season for everything in life, for every matter. And the one who determines those seasons is God. Stand in awe of Him. Live life with the awe of God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God.